everyone is a star child made of stardust and the infinite potential of the universe. This extraordinary fearless something in each of us clamors for freedom from the bonds of fear, conformity, and an ordinary life. Welcome to Dr. Durr's Living in the Sweet Spot, where practical tools and solutions from the intersection of mind-body medicine, science, and spiritual well-being awaken and empower you to live out your infinite potential, to live life in the sweet spot. Hello, I am your host, Dr. Valen A. Durr, and welcome to Dr. Durr's Living in the Sweet Spot. You know, historically, African-American people were brought to the United States as property for the power and pleasure and profit of a few. We were brought here, it was about 400,000 enslaved people that were then grown to 4 million slaves. And nowhere else on the globe did that occur where a small number of enslaved people were grown to that uh, size and population. And that has uh, had a number of consequences that still reverberate in this country until today. One of those things is that uh, many African-American children are told by their parents that because we were considered inferior uh, and even three-fifths of a human being at one time, that you have to, to do your best. You have to be exceptional. You have to be twice as good as, um, as, you know, as white folks are in order to be considered even close and even still you're not considered to be as, as good and as valuable. Another thing that that has contributed to then has been what, you know, many people call the, the strong black woman you know, or the black superwoman complex. So today we're going to be having that conversation and how that backdrop and those, you know, series of, 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 of variables, then also how it shows up and how, you know, we as, as women and African-American women don't show ourselves self-compassion and, and, and good self-care. So joining me today to have that conversation um, is, is actually Dr. Bridget Arnett and Dr. Moussi Arnett. Hello, hello. Dr. Ballin, Hi, my hello. name is hard, but you got it right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it's I, the I small victories. Folks, you know, folks have a lot of difficulty, you know, with, with my first name. And, and so it's, for me, it's always important to, to get that right. So, so, so yay. <laughs> yes. And I appreciate it too. You wouldn't believe how many things I've been clawed over the years, including Moesha, like Brandy Norwood's character. So mm-hmm. thanks for 
making the attempt and getting it right. Well, you you are more than welcome. You're more than welcome. So, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm so glad to have you both here with me to to, to have uh, this conversation and um, uh, you know to to, to have two um, exceptional physicians with me to have this conversation uh, t- today. Something that we we. Um, I know the three of us have thought a lot about something the three of us um, in, our, in our own ways have experienced. So let me let me go ahead and, and um, you know, jump into your backgrounds. And so obviously the obvious things is that you all are, are mother and daughter. And then Dr. Bridget and I actually were in medical school together at the same time. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. You go back. Um, huh? You go back. Yeah, we, yeah. Go, we, we, we go back. Mm-hmm. So, so Dr. Bridget mm-hmm. Arnett is, has an MD, PhD with board certifications in neurology, clinical neurophysiology, and sleep medicine. She earned her BA in neurobiology and physiology from Northwestern University, and then a PhD in neurobiology from the University of Illinois at Chicago, along with her MD degree. She completed her residency and fellowship training in neurology and clinical neurophysiology with an emphasis in epilepsy at Rush University. Dr. Arnett has practiced in the Chicago suburbs and Hyde Park neighborhood for over 20 years. And, um, you you know, we'll tell you later, you can find her practice uh, there in, in, in Hyde Park. So then... Dr. Mausti Arnett is a physician entrepreneur with a background in health disparities, research, and board certifications in family medicine and obesity medicine. Dr. Mausti earned her BA from Princeton University and her MD from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and an MPH from John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. After completing her residency training at Northwestern Family Medicine, she served the region as a Northwestern Medicine Hospitalist, excuse me, Hospitalist during the first phases of the pandemic. And she now runs BiteWellness.com, a text message-based wellness learning community for Black women looking to shift habits, cut disease risk, and boost well-being. So ladies, Thank you again for joining me. Thank you. And Dr. Bowen, can I can I add one thing? Of course. So just so everyone knows, because it can be hard to tell sometimes, I'm the daughter and Dr. Bridget is the mother in this relationship. But uh-huh. she also <laughs> she also helps to co-host. Uh, our weekly workshops with Bite Wellness. So over the last few months, we've been working together, helping to educate the community. So that's been really wonderful. So yeah, that's great. And and obviously, as part of that, com- as part of our conversation, you know, I want you to to share that that with us, so um, that the audience, you know, can benefit. And I'm sure there's some benefit in there for for me as well. Um, but we started, so we started off this conversation um, talking about 
the the black superwoman complex and you know how that plays into our experiences here in the United States but also then how that has had an impact upon you know our our health and and well-being and more important um, our our illness both mentally and physically uh, because just the bur- the burdens that we um, keep on and that are heaped onto us, you know, eventually cause us to to break down because we're you know taught not to show ourselves compassion and, and self care. So why don't we why don't we start off by talking about you know a bit about the the, the black superwoman uh, complex, Doctor Mawusi? You wanna you wanna talk to some about that? Yeah, yeah. So I mean. Uh, I, I think probably it makes sense to situate our conversation in this long legacy of health disparities research, um, where, you know, since pretty firmly since the 80s onward, we've had a growing number of academic researchers in public health and other fields Um, looking at the ways that social determinants of health or these social factors, the the culture we're bathed in, the resources we have access to, the laws that affect us, all these factors in society, how they affect health outcomes. And so there is this incredible researcher, and there are a group of them, but the one I'll name is Dr. Amani Allen out of UC Berkeley, and she's done a ton of research since the 90s on what she terms the superwoman schema. And so, I mean, we talk about the Black superwoman complex. We talk about strong Black woman colloquially. Like, we all have a sense of this notion because we've experienced it. But I want to make sure that the audience knows that the things that we're talking about are firmly grounded in science. Um, Dr. Allen has uh, designed studies that allow her to test different parts of the superwoman schema. So to create an index of sorts that describes what exactly we're experiencing, what we are doing in response to the stressors we experience and how that is packaged as something she calls the superwoman schema and then how that correlates with higher risk of disease, especially high blood pressure, um, potentially type 2 diabetes, weight gain, and a number of the metabolic diseases that uh, under which lie uh, chronic inflammation, these metabolic diseases that are triggered by chronic inflammation. So, so why don't we start off though by defining what the Black Superwoman complex looks like, right? I mean, you know, obviously we hear about it, we talk about it, um, and um, you know, um, it's it's wonderful that there is research to support it. But let's let's start with that first. Yeah, right? Which yeah. Is, of course, that you know, we can do everything, you know, mm-hmm. bring home the bacon fried up in the pan and I can take care of the kids and I can, you know, uh, take care of my man 
and I can be, a, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. I, I can do whatever I want to do in terms of being a physician, I can, um, you know, take care of my parents and uh, I can be, you know, um, I can be large and in charge at church uh, and, and, you know, in the, in the school system when the kids are still in school. Um, and I don't feel pain, right? I'm, I don't, mm -hmm. I suppress my own pain. I suppress my own needs um, because I'm able to do it all. Right. Yeah. Did I leave out anything? Did I leave out anything, Dr. Bridget? No, that's about right. That's about right. No, that's a that's a really good way of putting it, Dr. Bowen. Just I mean, look, the two of you are the ones with children having to go through medical training with children. So I know you have experienced this. Um, strong black woman, superwoman complex or superwoman schema, uh, probably more acutely than I have. You've had to deal with the stressors that require you to respond. Um, yeah, although, it, I used to call, in, although I used to call it the Wonder Woman complex. I was like, Wonder you know, I'm, about woman. This, I'm about to pull this W off my chest. because <laughs> You know what? And a lot of it is, you know, interestingly, a lot of it is survival mode, right? Because you realize that you're trying to achieve despite the deck stacked against you. Um, you're trying to be better than because you have to be. But at the same time, you're trying to take care of your family because you sometimes don't always have a lot of support or as much support as you'd like to have. And at other times, we're also trying to have a career or complete school, but also make sure make sure your children are sane. And that takes a lot in this society as a Black woman, because we're not afforded even just the mental support to manage that. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so it, I was just going to say, so, in, 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 so for those who, so for those of us who also may, you know, may not, you know, realize this, um, part of the reason why this spoke to this this conversation too really really spoke to me for for a couple reasons. One, um, even though I'm a physician who specializes, you know, and in, in, in actually board certified in child, adult, and you know, uh, um, child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry, so double boarded in in those. Um, but I'm also undergraduate. My undergrad degree is I have a BA in sociology and a minor in African American studies. So particularly in this context that we're having the conversation, this, this really spoke to me. The other part of this, which um, Dr. Mousi, you already, you know, spoke to is, you know, I, I went through undergrad, you know, took some time off. But then when I started medical school, I was a single parent of an 11 month old wow. starting medical school. Right. Cannot even imagine Incredible. Yes. You you had to be a Wonder Woman to get through that. Right. And so partly we, you know, are into the first semester and and I was like, uh oh, <laughs> which is this is 
Uh, you know, and I and I and I didn't expect it to be easy. I'd actually even had a conversation with a single mom uh, who was in medical school at another site prior to starting. So it wasn't it wasn't that I expected it to be to uh, I expected it to be difficult and challenging. It's just, of course, it wasn't until I was in it that I realized how difficult and challenging it was. And yeah. um, and then because of that, you know, I went into um the five-year program, I had um, really didn't really have much of any su support. And her dad, um, you know, then stepped in during um, the, the, you know, the, the, the years that was just the was classroom time before you go into the clinical years. And, um, you know, she was staying, she was staying with him until, um, then we move into the into the clinical years. So you know, and I also had an independent study year. So between the th the five year program and the independent study year, you know, then we're talking about a process. There was six years for me graduating mm -hmm. from medical school, um, which to me, the the objective is of course is is to graduate from medical school, you know, in good standing and become a licensed physician not necessarily the fastest way I can do it, um, yeah. especially given, given, given what sure. I was dealing with. Right. And so then, you know, then, you know, we also, you have your parents, of course, which, which I didn't mention your dad, Dr. Mark Arnett, we were in this, we started, we were in the same class. We started together and, um, and then Dr. Bridget came over from, from her PhD training coursework to medical school. And then, and was that in 93, was that? Um, I started med school in 93 and yeah, yeah, 93, yep. And, right. and so I was seven, I was six, seven years old at that point. So you, you both went through med school and, and, mom through grad school and part of undergrad with a kid uh i guess by the time uh dr bridget mom started med school my brother was born so you had two of us which is why again for the two of you i just bow down because all i had to do was take my little behind to class and study and try not to get in too much trouble but you were actually raising human beings, which is just a whole nother set of of stressors. And I know you're the host, Dr. Ballin, but can I ask you a question? <laughs> of course. Do you so you've mentioned being in the five year program, you mentioned taking a year of independent study, and it strikes me, wow, you you did something incredible by recognizing that you needed more support support or that you needed more time to manage all the responsibilities you had. And I wonder if at the time it felt that way to you, or even if now you recognize just what an incredibly strong move that was to say, I need more time. Because I know sometimes in the moment, it, I'll speak for myself, it can feel like weakness. And it's part of the superwoman complex, right? It, it can feel like weakness to have to say, well, I, I am going to take more time or I, I need some help. How did you see it so, back then so, and now? So, no, I was very clear that that's what I needed to do. 
And I, you know, I, I, uh, and I had no um, compunction, no, you know, no beating up on myself going, you should be able to do. No, (laughs) (laughs) this is what I need to do. And I, and I, and I tell people that one of the things for me, because of how difficult it was, there were times when I would sit down and cry. So I, I want nobody mm. to be under the mistaken belief that, you know, I somehow breeze through medical school without any difficulty, without any challenge, without any stress, sure. without, um, you know, having to pivot, right? Without having to, without having to adapt to an environment and a landscape that I was unfamiliar with. And mm-hmm. The other thing too, and, and I shared this story with before, because when I was interviewing for medical school, I was pregnant with Hillary. She was due right on top of when school started. So I deferred, you know, starting for a year. And when I was trying to decide what what school to go to was between uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, UIC, and University of Nebraska, excuse me, University of Nebraska, Omaha, or UNO. And so I ended up having a conversation, you know, with someone from from both schools. And one of them at University of Illinois at Chicago, UIC, was Petrina Dunlop, who uh, Dunlap, who I didn't understand mm-hmm. at the time, was in her own right a badass. She subsequently <sighs> ended up, yes, she subsequently ended up matching in orthopedic surgeon. Surgery. So you all know how extraordinary that is for an African-American female yes. to match yes. in orthopedic surgery. So the conversation Ooh. that I had with her prior to starting was, um, you know, was how do I make this choice about which school to pick? You know, from Chicago, uh, I was in the Chicago Area Health and Medical Careers Program, or we called it the CHAMP program. So I had supports built in from that but but little family support um, because folks were working and where I lived, et cetera. But the thing was, what she said to me was two things. She said, um, everybody comes here can do the work. She said, but those who end up leaving here, it's because they let something else become the priority. The other piece of uh, advice she gave, she said, is it racist here? Because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm hearing about this. Is it racist here? Yes, it's racist here. And she said, what you don't do is you don't create situations where you have to appear before the committee and give them an opportunity to screw you. Those were her words. Meaning, yeah, some academic trouble so that you have to appear before the academic committee and then give them an opportunity to do things that are that are harmful to you in your career mm-hmm. uh, compared to what they might, how they might approach, uh, uh, you know, students of a different color or, or ethnicity. Right. So when you ask the question, implicit the topic, bias is real. Me, yeah. So tie back the question you asked me, that was very much a part of my decision-making at all times when I, especially when faced with major decisions and, and major pivots um, that w- what am I here for? Why am I here? What's the goal? What's the objective? And keep the, and keep the thing, the main thing, the main thing. 
right? I'm balancing all these other things and what's important, but but wh- why am I here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, so you know, I I I you know want to follow up and 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 hear some more about your mom's story and 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 get into further than this, but. Um, why don't we take a break first, and when we come back, we will we'll, we'll pick up with this. All right. Okay. All right. Heaven abounds in you, enlightens, uplifts, inspires, and invites you to live a life that's engaged, joyous, and limitless—the sweet spot of life. Take this journey in oneness. We are and have all that God, the infinite creative source of the universe, is. You are infinite potentiality, and the kingdom of heaven is within you. Heaven abounds in you. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Balan A. Durr, and today we are discussing the Black Superwoman Complex and its impact upon um, health and wellness, um, and, and actually its negative impact upon self-compassion, self-care, because of our um, historical experiences as African-American people and African-American women here in, in the United States. And of course, joining me again is Dr. Bridget Arnett and Dr. Mausi Arnett. So, so, so ladies, so where we, we left off with, we were talking about the fact that um, was it difficult for me to make the decision to uh, go into the five-year program and to take and also have an independent study year, which then meant instead of the traditional four-year path, I was in this, a, a six-year, took me six years to graduate from medical school because I was also a, a single parent with an 11-month-old when I started. It says she did come back, you know, to live with me full time uh, at the beginning of uh, the clinical years, which would have been third year. But for me, actually was was what year five. So five and six, five and six, the fifth and sixth year she was with me. So, you know, that the question that, that you asked, Dr. Mausi, was that. Um, and again, the answer was n- no, because of the advice I've been given by Dr. You know, so, subsequently by, by Dr. Dunlap, um, who became Dr. Dunlap and, you know, to keep the priority straight. Right. So, you know, I'd say, so Dr. Dr. Bridget, did you have any of those moments where you were having to make decisions about, you know, you know, adjustments in your path that you're making and any, and any, difficulty making those decisions because you're saying I should be able to um, do something that now wasn't, didn't necessarily serve you best given what else you had to manage. So I guess my biggest um, issue was when my, my, when Dr. Ruth was born, my first child, I was in college. So I took nine months off. Um, the last three months of pregnancy and then the first six months of her life and then returned um, and then just continued on with my program and graduated that next year. Um, 
but that kind of taught me, I guess, because it's a med school that taught me um, that was very hard. And I'm not, I'm, I will never pretend that that was not difficult. And like you said, there are nights where you just, it's just overwhelming, overwhelmingly difficult. But it also taught me that there are certain things that I knew, I learned about myself. So I learned that I learned a certain way that my brain worked efficiently a certain way. And I think I got my best grades that last year than I did my previous three years. Because then you, because you, you challenge yourself and you have to learn what works. I think that I became very efficient. Um, and from there went right into a doctoral program and had, you know, she was, I guess, two years old by that time. And, and I, I knew how to study. I knew how to study. I, but it was hard. It was hard because I had to learn that that last year of undergrad year, and that was probably the most challenging. And all of it was. But I adapted to become a speed reader, to become an ultimate um, note taker. I learned to extrapolate information that was important, and I learned to become probably one of the most one of the best seducers <laughs> that you could imagine. And I think that was my walk through the fire moment. Um, so that under, so that grad school was difficult. I'm not going to pretend it wasn't. And then med school was difficult. I'm not going to pretend it wasn't, but I could not go to study class. Um, what was it? Study groups with everyone else. Cause I learned, I realized that my brain worked differently and it had to for me to succeed. And yeah, I had plenty of nights where I just cried all night long. And then, but then I learned that exercising was my way of crying. So I became an excellent um, jogger, runner, lifting weights. And instead of being sad, I sort of use physical exertion as a way to get endorphins flowing and get a better understanding of that mind-body connection. And it always reinvigorated me, always reinvigorated me. So those were all my come-to-Jesus moments, <laughs> trial-by-fire moments. Um, but like I said, I learned the majority of that that last year of undergrad. So it's inter it's interesting that you described as exercise is is is, is your way of crying. What, what what did you mean by that? Well, not okay. So sometimes, so I couldn't. So sometimes, when when you know life just gets so hard that you just want to sit in a corner and whimper because you realize how difficult it is, even if you're succeeding, you know because. Even when you're succeeding, you're still realizing that you've exerted so much mental energy and physical energy that you just need a release. And sometimes crying is that release. I found that um, exercise was that release for me. And then the more I exercised, the more it was that release of, oh, I've got to get this weight off of me. And sometimes, you know, to me, 
crying is cathartic, right? It's, it's designed to release this, but I couldn't spend as much time crying as I wanted to, <laughs> so I started exercising. And exercise was that same type of cathartic relief um, that that reinvigorated you. I don't know. Does that make sense? Because I don't cry a lot, but if I cry, it is it is it's more of a cathartic. Like you know, like you said, it's more of a relief. Then I feel better, a little bit more invigorated, and then I just keep on going. It's not like a wallowing cry. It's a God, life is so hard. You gotta, you know, you're praying. You gotta, you gotta be with me and help me. You cry, you release. Yeah, and I guess all my crying was always associated with prayer. <laughs> and then afterwards, I guess my release was okay. I, you're gonna handle it. I feel better. I move on. And then, like I said, I found that exercising either in the morning or in offered me the same feeling. So I think to your point, really what, what you're what you're saying, and it's one of the, you know, one of the benefits of exercise, you know, which research has shown that, you know, exercise can be as effective for mild and moderate depression as medication. And the 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 obviously what happens through the through the exercise, right, is you're getting the blood flowing. Um, you're also increasing the production of, you know, the brain chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, neuroepinephrine that are also, you know, help that help with, you know, man- managing your mood and having a good mood. So mm-hmm. um, and then also you're releasing what you said, the endorphins, which is what your body's own natural opiates that yeah. help you feel better as well. Right. Um, it's not only just a, it's not only a painkiller, mm-hmm. but it's also, you know, gives you that that also another dopamine release, um, you know, to help you feel good. So I, 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 mm-hmm. I believe that's, um, you know, it's clearly been shown that that's that's the benefit, you know, of exercising. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that um, Dr. Mawisi and I have had the conversation about is that, you know, in the, you know, how we started off talking about the the conversation is the fact that, you know, we're almost, we're conditioned to, to, to excel. We're conditioned to excel in order to be accepted. We're, and, and, and we're conditioned to um, excel in order to try to be seen, frankly, as human beings, in order to be seen as as equals and someone who has the same humanity as, you know, the dominant culture and white folks here in this country, and mm-hmm. and the truth of, and the truth of the matter is, for some for some people, no matter how much we excel, and again, we're told that you have to be twice as good um, in order to be seen even as the same that that's never true for cert, for a certain group of people in this country. No matter what we do, no matter what we achieve, we're never going to be seen as, as as equals. But you do it to be seen as as equal to be. But also, interesting enough, and I wanted you to speak to this, Dr. Mawusi, mm-hmm. is the fact that you know it's 
it's the protective illusion of the black superwoman complex that you, that 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 creates that you know the desire to say well maybe i won't be devalued i won't be dismissed uh i will i won't lose my job because i'm seen as you know being extremely valuable highly competent and you know a major contributor to whatever the endeavor uh or the organization um is that i'm a, that i'm a part of that that mission yeah i mean i i jotted some notes down here because there's so much there but um dr ballen what you included in your story is just a, a perfect uh illustration of the ways in which our super this superwoman schema uh, really is our version of a a reasonable coping mechanism right it may turn out not to be the most productive or the most adaptive um but it's it's the one that has emerged over generations of black women living in this world dealing with the the outcome of structural racism dealing with the marginalization marginalization of patriarchal systems so like this two-layered oppression a uh, two-layered disadvantage of of being black and woman and like I'm just going to clarify this point because some people who don't understand the terminology get kind of confused about this but there is nothing wrong with being a black woman there is nothing wrong with being black there is nothing wrong with being a woman and black women are incredible but the social structures in this country which date back to the time when Dr. Ballen mentioned we were brought here our ancestors were brought here for the the what is it the purpose profit and pleasure I, 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 call it, I call it the three p's we're brought here for the power profit and pleasure power profit and pleasure yes of at the time dominant class wealthy white men and those structures have endured evolved the legacy exists continues to interpolate itself into our public policy into so many parts of everyday life and when we feel that we understand as your mentor did that we can't afford to slip up you can't be caught slip yeah you yeah you can't you can't be caught you can't be caught slipping or or sleeping and so one of the mm -hmm. so one of the things too that I wanted to you know I wanted to bring an understanding to 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 this to, to our conversation is I don't think a lot of people understand um and I, this is how I characterize it that there is the persistence of a tribal mentality right mine versus yours and the fight over resources and in the mm. fight over the resources it becomes what do I have to do and who do I have to do it to in order to get these resources for me and mad and for you not to get them right mm -hmm. and, and in doing so 
then the color that matters most is the color green. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. if you look at it carefully, and and, 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 he, and and I want folks to hear me, I am in no way saying that racism and discrimination and discrimination does not occur based upon race and that, that we are not identified easily because of, because of that. We're not discriminated against because of that, because we absolutely are. But it's in the context mm-hmm. of getting access to resources, money, jobs, education, housing, mates, all of that. Let me get it from me and mine and keep it away from you. That's mm-hmm. why one person has the wealth is equivalent to the bottom 50% in this country. And and I and and if it's strictly about if it's and if it's strictly about that we're African American or we're Hispanic or we're Asian, so I don't want you to have it. If it's strictly if it's strictly about race and ethnicity, then why aren't all white folks doing well? And that's the that's the Kool-Aid. That's the Kool-Aid that they got folks drinking. Think thinking that you're better off because you're Caucasian. Mm-hmm. When the reality, mm-hmm. when reality, mm-hmm. who make up most of the poor? Who make up most mm-hmm. of the assistance? But white folks. Why? Because mm-hmm. it's impossible. It's impossible for numerically for us as thirteen percent of the population to be most of the poor, or for That's Hispanics. Right. Or anybody else, you put all of us together, we still not gonna make up all most of the poor. Numerically, it's impossible. So the mm-hmm. distraction is to say, oh, it's 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 them who's poor, it's them who's the problem, is them. And and so then you distract, you know, the average working person that's white, working class, mm-hmm. fact, no, they're keeping the resources away from you, also, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to so then, of course, to, to you know, to, to to bring it back around to um, what what you were what you were saying, I just wanted to create also create that backdrop right. to to yeah. what we're experiencing as well. Yeah, and I appreciate mm-hmm. that context. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Bell Hooks wrote about this so much that, um, and MLK did actually too. Wrote about materialism. He he used the phrase materialism. She uh, wrote about capitalism, but you can also call it classism, um, mm-hmm. structured as a, just a, another form of oppression where the folks being oppressed are the ones who don't have as much, right? Who mm-hmm. don't have as mm-hmm. many material resources. And so we've got, um, whether you call it materialism or late stage capitalism or classism as one of the three-pronged uh, ills that this country has to overcome if we don't plan to destroy ourselves. Um, the other two prongs, at least, are uh, structural racism and, you know, its partner interpersonal racism. So that's where, like, in- implicit bias comes in. Um, and the things that we experience in everyday life when we're interacting with people who just kind of don't like the look of us or get the sense that we might not be as qualified. That would be their implicit bias. And then the the third prong, MLK wrote about militarism, but Bell Hooks um, brings in patriarchy. And so again, those last two prongs are the, the layers of disadvantage that Black women have to 
find ways around. And so we've we've created this uh, coping strategy that we're calling Wonder Woman uh, approach or Superwoman schema, as Dr. Ellen calls it. Um, and, and that is our version of saying, look, you know the odds are stacked against you, girl. Keep it together. Rise above. You cannot be mediocre. You cannot be subpar. You can't fail anything because if ever you, you give uh, the powers that be who are necessarily saddled, likely saddled with their own implicit bias against you because it's just the water that we swim in in the U.S. If you give the powers that be an opportunity or a reason to examine you more closely, they're probably going to decide that you're not, you're not deserving of mm-hmm. whatever it is you have. The position, you're not deserving of, of being a medical student. You're not deserving of being on staff at this hospital. And mm-hmm. they will mm-hmm. find, because human brains work like this, um, mm-hmm. the, there's a confirmation bias. They will come to their conclusion first that you just don't seem like you cut the mustard. You're, you shouldn't be one of us. And then they'll find an argument to support that. They'll they'll make up the data if they have to and, and just kind of make it make sense. I've had my own experiences uh, to that end in medical school, and that is probably a conversation for a whole other day. But I will say that at my fancy, I'm, I'm calling them out, at my fancy uh, medical school, UPenn, um, there was this department that all the black students knew. And this is 08 to 2014. Like this is very recent. All of the black students in SNMA meetings would say, stay away from the internal medicine department. Like do not do any extra rotations there because they have- You may not know SNMA is a student national medical association, right? Which is the student student chapter of the National Medical Association, which has uh, the, uh, historically been the medical association for African-American doctors in the U.S. Yeah, right. that was created when we weren't initially allowed into the American Medical Association. So we created our right. own. So the student branch at my med school would get together and, you know, the upperclassmen would give us underclassmen advice mm-hmm. and consistently every meeting the advice was unless you are dying to be trained as an internal medicine doctor and you are planning to go to residency in internal medicine don't do any of your upper level classes in this department because they had such a history of not just grading black students poorly but actively failing them when these black students had received very high marks in so many other departments and we we um had this mentor this faculty mentor who was was she made all the difference i think in our experience and one of the things she shared with us was something that was said by a the probably 
assistant chair, perhaps, of the department at the time, mm -hmm. who happened to be a white woman, who, when the faculty members were discussing this question of why there aren't more Black students who stay on for residency, and why there aren't more of their Black residents who stay to become faculty members. Like, why can't we keep our, our really smart Black students? Her response was actually, well, that's because there are two types of Black students. There are the superstars, and there are the affirmative action cases. And so that's the type of bias that could destroy, I, I may be hyperbolic here, but could cause so many problems for a student who gets caught up in that mm -hmm. net with any reason for that. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not could cause, it's does cause. Let's just call it the word. Yes, exactly. It. You're right, you're right. That, that it, not what it can cause or could cause is what it does cause. And, yeah. you know, um, and what it did cause. As we, mm -hmm. And as we get into these last few minutes that we that we have remaining, I want to make sure that we bring in um, as an example of what your the current example, I think, of what's going on is with, um, you know, President Claudine Gay uh, of, um, you know, of Harvard University. Mm -hmm. And the difficulties that 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 she's experiencing, um, and again, I, I I think that it it while there are definitely things that need to be addressed at at, at in terms of what's happening, um, uh, you know, people's verbal expressions uh, about uh, either the Jewish people or the the Palestinian people, then that. Um, but to go after her about uh, saying that she's plagiarizing when Harvard itself has done an investigation and said the citations are, are uh, you know, weren't quite, weren't quite accurate and that, that that needed to be addressed. But there were, but there was no plagiarism involved. She's been cleared of plagiarism um, and then allowed to make whatever adjustments. But then you see, you know, the Republicans going after her and also the president of, of uh, Pennsylvania and other women. And to, from my perspective, it has a lot to do with, let me discredit you, right? Let me, dis, let me discredit you so that we can get who we want, which ideally is a white male, um, you know, is, is the head of these institutions. And so I, I think that, you know, part of the thing again is, is, is to look at this, um, how we've, then developed, you know, the black woman super complex, um, I mean, superwoman complex, but a state a still, again, how, you know, it's still attacked. We're still attacked with things are still torn down because they want the resource. They want the prestige the, and the money and the power that goes along with being, you know, in a position of being president of such a prestigious um, university. So, how do you go about doing that? You got to discredit the person who's who's in the who's in the position, and and you know you know frankly, you know some some you know some some folks use the, the terms that the stuff they clearly had done um, was actually a witch hunt, and you know one might say this about this case, but frankly, I 
I'll, I'll call it a public lynching. That's what that's what's underway here with with yeah. with, with President Gay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we get into the health the the the, the health issues with this. But I was just say, what what are your thoughts about what I just said, Doctor Bridget? You know, I agree. I think it is a um, public lynching, and you know, some of the the backstory this. Um, rich, wealthy, um, previous Harvard graduate who actually attended Harvard on legacy, uh, because of legacy, um, very angry with Gay because, you know, she won't play ball with him and he's a wealthy donor and wants things to occur his way, right? Um, the Republican Congress that's taken up the charge, they've already proven that they are against all things black and all things female, pretty much. Um, You know, they hate to see, especially black women in power who are not on their so-called side. And I don't understand the, I don't, I don't know their overall agenda other than um, being against higher education, being against um, people of color in general and definitely educated people of color. Um, so, you, you know what, I was just going to say, obviously, um, you know, this this is a uh, rich conversation with so many layers and texture that um, um, I, I know we actually wanted to get kind of more in depth about the the, the health impact and the disparities associated with you know with being the, the black superwoman complex, um, but but I think we, that really means we're gonna have to do a part two. So just just quickly, um, where can folks you know because we're run out of time? Where can folks? you know, connect with you and the work that you guys are doing. Cause again, you guys have been doing something. I know you're talking about doing a podcast, but you've been doing this weekly health meeting for three years now. And so how can people, you know, find you on social media or how can they reach out to you uh, in order to, to, to be connected in these yeah. last 30 seconds? Dr. Mawusi. Yeah. So you can find Bite Wellness and our text message based uh, wellness courses. You can find that at bitewellness.com, B-Y-T-E wellness.com, uh, or on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, at Bite Wellness in order to get recordings uh, and clips from the weekly Wednesday night workshop, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, welcome to join. Head to the website and, and find that link where Dr. Bridget and I co-host a session each week and dr bridget can find your practice at hydeparkneurology.com yes thank you for that just look we we lost dr bridget there for a moment so um yes my absolute pleasure to have you all on the show and again I'm, i'm i'm hoping that we can do a part two so we can get into the to some of the the health aspects of of things so um Thank, thank you so much both for being here. Thank you.
I am Dr. Valen A. Durr, awakening and empowering you to live out your infinite potential, to live life in the sweet spot. See you next week. Thank you for joining us today in the sweet spot. Share, follow, and like us on social media. To learn more, please visit balinadurmd.com, spelled B-A-L-I-N-A-D-U-R-R-M-D.com. Join us next week, and remember, when you heal your mind, all things are possible. <laughs>